This meeting is being recorded. Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemorations Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the study group. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. I am Olena Palko, a co-convener of the study group, and today I will be talking to Maciej Górny at the Institute of History of the Polish Academy of Sciences. Maciej, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the history of East Central Europe? Hi, Olena. It's nice to talk to you again. Um, well, uh, it, with me, it all started... Uh, pretty early and I was uh, basi basically and initially fascinated by, uh, by Czech uh, literature and culture. And that was also uh, the first thing I really did, I, I, I was doing during my studies. I, I, had, uh, I attended a couple of different uh, departments at Warsaw University and this uh, uh, Bohemistic, as uh, it was called then and is called now, uh, was uh, at the beginning, at the center of my of my interests. And then I uh, then I was extremely lucky to um, to meet uh, Maciej Janowski, uh, who was appointed as my as my supervisor. Uh, he's a uh, historian, um, currently director of the institute I'm working in, and. Um, and also professor at the Central European University in Budapest, and currently uh, rather in Vienna than in Budapest, but still uh, well, not not uh, not completely uh, resettled. Uh, then, uh, well, he, in a way, uh, he helped me to see uh, broader picture to to. Uh, uh, Caught to get interested in, in things going beyond this initial uh, fascination with, with all things Czech. Uh, and then I was again uh, very lucky to, uh, thanks to the late uh, Vladimir Borodzi, to, uh, to uh, be invited as a, as a doctoral student to the Berliner Kolleg für Vergleichende Geschichte. Europas, a, a doctoral colleague uh, in Berlin, uh, which was uh, quite evenly divided between uh, Eastern and Western European uh, students. And, uh, and this institution, which is no more, uh, unfortunately, uh, was quite successful in creating a, a group of, uh, of fundamentalists of historical comparisons. I, I was talking to Bernhard Struck, who is country uh, professor at St. Andrews, uh, who uh, just while, while talking randomly noticed that uh, he 
discovered, he discovered himself not being uh, able to do any other history than comparative history. It's uh, probably something that we've all got infected with uh, while at uh, this backup uh, in Berlin, uh, which was led by, by uh, Jürgen Koka, most of all, but, but also uh, Hartmut Kelbe, Holmes Unthausen, very, uh, very good historians, uh, bright, bright heads. Um, and since, since then, I'm, uh, well, I'm basically doing uh, comparative history of East Central Europe. Uh, I wrote a book on uh, Czech uh, history, historical cultures and Marxism. I compared various uh, various versions of Marxism-Leninism in, in East Central Europe. Uh, then I did uh, a, a little bit of, of the history of science and, and intellectual history in the region. Uh, and finally, uh, with again, uh, Vladimir Borodzi, whom I already mentioned with, uh, with we co-authored a history of, a synthesis of history of uh, First World War in East Central Europe. Um, uh, besides, I'm living in Warsaw, working at the Institute of the Academy. Uh, well, we'll see how long does it survive. And uh, I'm, my wife is doing literary history. Uh, my elder son is pretending to, uh, well, to, 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 to learn in order to obtain his maturity exam. And uh, but he does not uh, does not work in, uh, hard enough, if you ask me. Uh, and my younger son is the one uh, who will probably be responsible for all the background noise. Uh, if you uh, hear anything, it will be him. So that's basically hundred percent of me. Thank you. Um, you've mentioned already uh, one of your uh, last publications co-authored with Vladimir Borodzie, um, and uh, it has uh, recently been uh, translated into English under the title Forgotten Wars, Central and Eastern Europe, 1912-1916. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, how did the experiences of war and the period surrounded it in Eastern and Southeast Europe differ from those in the West? particularly in contrast to the Western Front, which still tends to dominate more popular understanding? Well, it's uh, it's almost like in those uh, old uh, and not uh, not totally funny jokes about Soviet Union. Uh, like, in, in Soviet Union, everything is larger than uh, in other parts of the world, even lies are. Are much bigger, and as uh, various diseases may might be incurable in the West, they are invincible in Soviet Union. So, if you compare uh, various phenomena uh, of the war on uh, the Eastern Front and Western Front, uh, what strikes one in the East is that some of them are really uh, larger. Uh, and, and uh, most more brutal, uh, deeper, or have longer-lasting consequences than uh, than in other parts of, of the world. And uh, I will give you a couple of examples, not to be so totally shallow. Um, if you just, well, you know, if you go for obvious 
uh, First World War uh, tropes and and say some well say something about I know uh, chemical war. Say you, you can well first notice that uh, there is a uh, parallelity between uh, chemical war uh, on uh, the Western and Eastern Front that uh, say Fritz Haber who is the leading personality uh, in the German general staff uh, responsible for this uh, directly after April uh, goes to the east and in April 1915 uh, makes precisely the same thing in the proximity of Gerardów in central Poland uh, so these are same things on the same scale uh, well with a small difference that between a half uh, up to two-thirds of all uh, wartime gas victims were Russian soldiers. Uh, if you add those Germans and Austrians who were victims of gas attacks on the Eastern Front, you can clearly see that, you know, whereas we speak about uh, a uh, world war phenomena, uh, its dimension in the East was, in a way, more drastic than anywhere else. Uh, and we tend to just uh, ignore this uh, fact. And it's just many of one of many. Uh, if you then take uh, what seems to me a, a perhaps a, 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 a stable, uh, a long-lasting trope that is a uh, kind of blurred line between uh, military and civilian sphere. Uh, you, and you look at phenomena as, uh, as uh, important, as, uh, um, uh, as dramatic as uh, displacement or uh, occupation. Uh, those are uh, mostly Eastern, uh, Eastern phenomena. Uh, even uh, if you uh, well uh, well it's it's clear and it, it does not need a, like, well we can all agree that uh, and it's quite obvious that uh, in terms of territories uh, occupation is a rather eastern and western european phenomenon uh, it's always, well, there's always more territory in the East than in the West. And all those occupations, all those military occupations are much bigger in geographical sense in the East than they are in the West. But even if you uh, try to you know to uh, pin uh, pin up this intensity of, uh, of occupation and then go for uh, urban areas or industrialized, uh, industrialized areas, it's uh, perhaps useful to remember that uh, places like Warsaw, Warsaw was and still is a bigger uh, city than Brussels, the biggest occupied city in the West, uh, that uh, places such as uh, Riga or Kiev are great industrial centers of Europe at the time. Um, so this is uh, surely a, a thing that uh, Eastern Europe uh, experiences in more uh, drastic, dire, and deeper way than than, than, than the West, and uh, and displacement is a also a, a radical 
uh, example of this disparity. Uh, whereas there are hundreds of hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen and uh, Belgians that were uh, forcibly transferred uh, from their homes, uh, the uh, scale of the phenomenon in the East is simply in incomparable. There are uh, up to one and a half million people escaping to the East in the days of uh, the German-Austrian offensive in 1915. There are uh, up to a million uh, people escaping Galicia when Russians came. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of Germans escaping from Eastern Prussia, and there are also uh, very, uh, very nasty places such as uh, such as Talerhof near Graz camps where thousands of Ukrainians perish. Uh, and other similar places. So the, um, if you compare this uh, wartime experience, there are many uh, phenomena that you associate with the war in general, uh, of which we tend to think with pictures taken from the Western Front, but their real impact, their dimension uh, in the East was greater, deeper, and well, perhaps uh, if I may say so, I shouldn't, but I will anyway, uh, should be remembered. Uh, or, yeah. At least equally. Yeah. Thinking about the Great War's Eastern Front, what role do you think this early wartime experience played in shaping demands for self-determination among different national groups in Eastern and Central Europe? At the same time, to what extent was the inter-ethnic violence that accompanied the formation of this new post-war nation-states a direct consequence of the First World War? Mm, well, um, it's a complicated question, really. Uh, I, I would say that, um, well, first of all, uh, the scene of uh, post-war uh, ethnic conflict is had prior to the war. So in the early 20th century, uh, you can clearly see most of the ethnic conflicts that will play out later. And it's not that they well just uh, materialized during the First World War. Um, what happens uh, and in the war and especially in its uh, in its uh, latter half, uh, like 1917, 1918, is something that um, that in a way uh, well resembles any other imperial intervention. If you look at uh, I know British in Afghanistan in 19th century, or uh, more recently. Uh, U.S. American intervention in Iraq. Uh, you uh, you face uh, a kind of well multilateral conflicts, uh, which are waged despite and next to the occupying power. Uh, there are some uh, well most in most cases more than two like three four uh, parties. They uh, they have their ag agenda and they are. Um, I'm sorry, it's it's more background noise than I'm ready to. 
hypotheque now. I can hear my own thoughts. Sorry. Uh, um, so you, you have this uh, really plethora of, of political groups of, uh, of ethnic uh, uh, groupings and even, even smaller sections, uh, smaller players uh, who Mm, who uh, are in conflict quite irrespectively from the uh, imperial uh, occupation or imperial control that is being uh, being set above them. Uh, and if you then uh, try to, if you're trying to establish a, a link between uh, the war itself and the post-war ethnic conflict. Uh, the most obvious uh, connection, uh, in my view, would be uh, a simple fact that uh, the war leaves in Central Europe full of uh, trained soldiers and uh, full of weapons. And all this is being used 1919, 1912, uh, 20. Uh, by the nascent uh, national uh, movements, by nascent states. Uh, there are some really uh, uh, striking uh, descriptions of uh, the way how uh, national armies were being uh, organized in 1919. Well, a, a story about uh, a Western Ukrainian army uh, formed in uh, Lemberg in 19, uh, late 1918 is just, uh, you know, a kind of uh, regrouping of local uh, garrison of Austro-Hungarian Austro army uh, with all non-Ukrainians living for homes and all Ukrainians staying with weapons in their hand and just, you know, name changing their uh, changing their uh, their employee from uh, from kaiser to the republic uh, of uh, western ukraine uh, so uh, in short the, i would say that there is um, there is no uh, ideological nor intellectual connection between uh, the Great War and the ethnic conflict in Central Europe. Uh, the ethnic conflict, uh, all conflicts, there are a much uh, longer term uh, phenomena, uh, but the way that they uh, are waged in the early post-war period, the brutality of them, uh, the, all this has a lot to do with the way uh, the whole Great War was waged in the region. It is, uh, well, the toys are left by the Imperial armies. Uh, soldiers are uh, former soldiers of Imperial armies. Uh, so there is certain continuity, uh, a kind of acceleration of, uh, of uh, conflicts that uh, had been here before. Um, thank you. Um, another question also uh, linked to the um, experience of, of the post-war. 
Um, the region you focus on has been defined as shattered zone, the border territories of the old European empires, which were often used as experimental areas for the great powers to test new concepts for managing diversity, such as ethnic cleansing, forced mass migration and population transfers. What role did this so-called scientific thinking and experts play in enabling, justifying or even precipitating ethno-religious violence in East Central Europe? Well, well, that is again something that seems pretty unobvious uh, to me. Uh, uh, well, well, first, first, let us think about who those experts are, uh, basically. Uh, well, generally speaking, this is a group of uh, academics, uh, members of a transnational milieu, uh, and now during the war, uh, some of them, uh, most, mostly those belonging to those uh, dominant uh, nationalities of the three empires, they uh, see the chance to, well, to take part in shaping uh, state policies, and they jump on this chance. Uh, this group includes uh, surely anthropologists who do their research in POW camps, uh, ethnologists who uh, gather folk songs of conquered peoples, uh, or say this Fritz Haber is also an expert. Uh, some of those experts uh, attach their hopes to the uh, national movements of the stateless nations. And those people like uh, what, Stepan Rudnicki or, 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 or um, Eugeniusz Romer, so Polish-Ukrainians, uh, Czechs, uh, Slovaks, uh, Lithuanians, uh, they uh, well, they are, they just take this risk. They they uh, they strive for a similar role in a country in a state that does not yet exist. And if you read them at this moment, there is really almost nothing uh, in their uh, thinking in their in their reactions that would be I don't know bloodthirsty. Um, brutal or, or uh, uh, abominable. Uh, and I do um, and I do not think that most of them, well uh, Fritz Haber excluded, uh, that uh, that they really uh, increased the measure of human suffering uh, during the war. Uh, I well I would have problems Justifying such a such a theory, such a thesis, um, but well, having said that, uh, they still uh, get their chance, and all this happens. But it happens later in the interwar period. Most of those guys uh, get rediscovered by far right, and they still belong uh, to this uh, kind of. Uh, far-right agenda and it's not by accident that you can read those uh, those guys on extreme right web pages and uh, that they they are republished by extreme right uh, editing houses uh, and it 
really surely counts for people like uh, Polish anthropologist Jan Czekanowski or a Ukrainian geographer Stepan Rudnitsky. They, they really belong to this kind of um, heritage, so to say. Um, so it's a, if you, if, if I go now back to your question, I would say that uh, thinking or speaking about, uh, about uh, first world time experts, you can say about the, perhaps you can you can say that what they did then uh, was a bump with, with delayed ignition. Uh, it's, uh, it had no chance to uh, blow up everything at the moment when it was written, published, uh, or uh, discussed for the first time. Uh, but it uh, it's still. Uh, there and it's a menace to all those uh, societies in the east that uh, well uh, well yeah, are in possessions of this of this heritage. Thank you, but isn't it then the shame that uh, those geographers as uh, as Rudnitsky nowadays they are interpreted through the eyes of the Ukrainian nationalists rather than you know like looking just at his his research? There is always this lens nowadays that mm. because of their reception or appropriation by the Ukrainian nationalists, they themselves yes, so are being treated as such, um, which is a bit ironic. Um, it's, uh, you know, there is a deeper, there's deeper, well, <laughs> well, not irony, but a kind of divide, uh, which, uh, which I tend to see between uh, West, well, generally speaking, Western European and Eastern European. Uh, perspective on uh, intellectuals which got very much involved in the war. Uh, that is, uh, whereas you are dealing with people like Thomas Mann or, uh, or uh, Gerhard Hauptmann on Henri Bergson, who really did nasty things. They really, they were really writing, publishing uh, rubbish uh, during the war, nationalistic uh, pamphlets of very low intellectual quality. Uh, well, you either, as a Frenchman or a German, uh, you are either ashamed or you ignore this part of their uh, public activity. Whereas in the case of Eugeniusz Romer, Stepan Rudnitschke, all, all this stuff is integrated into a kind of positive memory and, uh, well, explained away in a way that it uh, that it serves uh, national purposes uh, still uh, that makes a, a huge huge difference and that is something that i find really disturbing uh, continuing with the role of experts in central and eastern europe what role did map makers statisticians and demographers play in this social construction of ethnic identities and national minorities uh, did those representatives of minority communities have any agency in how their communities would be presented on post-war maps and calculated in the official data? Um, well, um, uh, first of all, there is, uh, uh, you know, if you, well, <laughs> okay, let me start with this. Uh, with this paradox uh, thesis that are basic, there is very basically uh, no one uh, in East Central Europe besides Jews uh, ready to accept a minority status. Uh, 
uh, at the end of the First World War. And nobody has a, uh, so to say, know-how uh, of how to be a, a minority. There is something that is not in a plan. Everyone, uh, you know, Lithuanians, Ukrainians, Latvians, whoever, uh, is very well prepared for its, his own national state in which uh, the majority question, the, the majority nation will be us naturally. naturally. Uh, so um, uh, it is it is it is not the um, well. So this is so to say a perimeter. Geographers and statisticians are acting within, uh, and they uh, that is one thing. So, and the other is that uh, those uh, experts, those uh, geographers, statisticians, uh, cartographers, they uh, are a transnational bunch uh, which communicate with each other very much. They belong to one basically single milieu uh, and their common goal besides their nationalisms, their, their patriotism, their whatever uh, political agenda, their common uh, goal is to uh, really retain primarily their expert status. Um, this forces them uh, to uh, keep contact with reality uh, and uh, actually makes it fairly unlikely to uh, sleepwalk into a kind of nationalistic Netherlands. Uh, so they, what they are doing is not drawing whichever nationalistic map they can imagine, uh, they are really concentrated on doing things that have some legs, uh, that are based on, uh, well, proper data. And that is also the point why uh, all of those nationalistic geographers and statisticians, they uh, mostly use imperial statistics in the early uh, 20s because these are data that everyone can agree uh, were more or less reliable. They are not producing their own full sets of data. They are really still working with uh, those that, are, that have a, at least partly international uh, renown. Um, so those two goals uh, being a nationalist and helping its, uh, its own, your own national cause and uh, keeping this uh, expert status uh, are uh, at times not easy to, to reconcile. Um, and, it's a, and it's a complicated play on two pianos that they really master. Uh, and I guess they, they succeed in that uh, thanks to this and in, 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 well, naturally, thanks to their own uh, talent, the, their own format. Uh, people like this uh, Rodnitsky, whom we mentioned already uh, a couple of times, uh, were really brilliant scientists. Uh, and uh, it, it's not sheer, incident, uh, sheer accident that 
that uh, Rudnitsky, Jovan Svich, or Eugenius Romer are still uh, known as the best geographers of their countries ever. Uh, uh, to sheer uh, coincidence or uh, strike of luck, all of them lived at the same period and took part in this, uh, in this history. Uh, and otherwise, I would say uh, that uh, are also well they are they were also products of German and Austrian universities uh, which well in fact that that, that, that also uh, must be uh, remembered and that speaks well for their uh, niveau um, yeah so that's I guess play the, the experts playing on two pianos is the, is the proper answer. If I could ask you another question, also with the link to minorities. Um, so in one of your books, uh, you examine the role of maps, geographers, and map makers in defining the borders of the new Europe. The book shows how maps can serve a source of speculations and fantasy, representing more often than not sources of disinformation. Could you perhaps give us any examples of this misrepresentation of minorities in the region and how it affected their official status within the respective uh, post-war states? Uh, well, yes, yeah, sure. Um, uh, but well, first, let me start with the uh, with the uh, bold thesis that it is uh, rather uh, well that until Paris, until uh, Paris peace talks in 1919, it is. Uh, rather politics that is shaping cartography and not cartography that is shaping policy. Uh, in 1920, a uh, great Hungarian geographer, uh, Pal Teleki, issued his beautiful map of Hungary according to the 1910 census, uh, on which sparsely populated mountainous areas are, uh, are left white, so they look as if completely abandoned. Uh, this allowed Teleki to uh, to dilute, uh, so to say, ethnic territories of Slovaks and, and Romanians. And in this way uh, of uh, cartographic representation, it also meant that the Hungarian national territory would be very visible, very red and uh, consolidated. Um, and it is... Um, and it also served naturally in 1920 uh, revision of the Hungarian borders. Uh, so this is, so to say, phase A, uh, when uh, a cartographic representation responds to the needs of politics. It is not the cartographers or the geographers who come up with ideas that shape uh, identities and politics. It's uh, the other way around. They, are they are giving answers to uh, to the highest bidder uh, and the most nationalistic bidder? Um, then, during the peace conference, uh, cartographers, geographers, and other experts are quite eagerly cheating with uh, ethnic cartography, uh, and well, and that is a say a, 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 a general tendency. They say. Uh, uh, the diplomatic negotiations, they, they all uh, do their best to, uh, just to, to get the most of what was then 
uh, possible. Uh, and it is then later, in the late 1920s or even 1930s, when uh, the whole scheme gets upside down and cartography, geography starts to uh, develop in a dangerous direction and, so to say, well, influence back thinking about politics, thinking about ethnic uh, divisions and uh, ethnic completion of, of uh, Eastern European uh, states. Uh, I will give one example uh, of uh, a Polish geographer, Jerzy Smoleński, who uh, in 1934, during the Geographical Congress in Warsaw, uh, presented a couple of maps of um, demographic maps. Uh, an interesting uh, issue was that uh, what Smolensky was showing uh, was a uh, density of poles in various areas, but it was not, uh, it were not necessarily uh, Polish dominated areas. It was density of poles ir irrespectively of whatever other ethnicity lived on the uh, area. Most of the regions he was dealing with uh, were uh, had a Ukrainian ethnic majority. And uh, Smolensky commented uh, upon those maps in a way I would then quote him. Uh, he, he, he wrote about, uh, that's a quotation, that's, that's a term he used on demographic potential of the Polish people. Uh, for comparison, uh, one should note that the county of Ternopil, today in Ukraine, has the same density of the Polish population as Płock County, that is central Poland, uh, that the counties of Skalat and Terebolia, again Ukraine, uh, on the very eastern border, are above counties of Sohachev, Pultusk, or Rawa, again central Poland. Um, Finally, that some counties in Podolia, so very much Ukraine, where Poles are a minority, have a density equal to that found in native, almost purely Polish counties, such as Przasnysz or Koło, uh, where Poles are more than 90% of the population, but their habitation is less dense. So what Smolensky is doing here is uh, just, you know, ignoring the fact that all those eastern counties he's dealing with are basically populated by somebody else besides Poles. He's interested only in one uh, particular dominant nationality. And he goes farther into suggesting that uh, Polish, that the Polish government should uh, repopulate all those ideas, all those areas. That, is, that it is enough to gather a hundred of thousands of Poles and to resettle them, them into Terebovia or uh, Ternopil, to make those places majority Polish places uh, on the basis of this already high density of Polish population there. And that is a way of thinking that is uh, in a way first ignoring the fact that uh, there is a multiplicity of nationalities in certain areas and concentrating on only on our nationality 
and then a, uh, an, a, an idea to change this situation via uh, transfer uh, of uh, population. Uh, this idea, uh, it's really gets going. And uh, then a couple of years later, uh, Volodymyr Kubyovich, again, a great uh, Ukrainian geographer, does precisely the same in his uh, Atlas uh, of Ukraine. Uh, he, uh, you know, he uh, uh, pedant in, in a pedantic way, he, he recounts all parts of Ukraine, uh, on, you know, going exactly as Smolensky proposed, just to count how many uh, Ukrainian settlers would be needed to get an upper hand on in this or or that region, and that is uh, a discussion between scholars that is uh, enveloping uh, precisely at the moment when uh, when Joseph Stalin uh, simply does such things. And that is something, you know, at that moment, so in the early 30s, we arrive at your question, so to say, uh, when, when uh, ethnic uh, cut of, when ethnic geography uh, starts really to have an impact on, uh, on, on life. Uh, but it's much, which is, which is so much more than politics. Thank you. This actually, uh, you mentioned Kubiovich, and um, I read the other day the, the introduction to his atlas, and he says that Ukraine goes all the way to the Pacific Ocean because this is where Ukrainians also live. Uh, so it didn't. Uh, there was no practical uh, use of that, but uh, it's also interesting how he defines uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian. No, I, like, I like this. I like this saying uh, that, that that says that. Uh, Russia borders with whoever she wants. Yes, so <laughs> this is just the other way of, uh, like, applicable to other other national group. Um, and and perhaps the last question, um, in your most recent publication, Poland Without Miracles: History for Adults, you've attempted to write an objective history of the Polish struggle for independence in the aftermath of the First World War. Could you tell our listeners about these miracles referred to in the title? And what were your main challenges while writing this book? Mm, well, I wouldn't say that, yeah, I wouldn't uh, dare to say that an objective history uh, is achievable and, and uh, even less so uh, an objective history of Poland. Um, but, uh, but still, uh, Polish independence is covered with uh, with myths, with uh, with this uh, uh, well, uh, myth of Polish-Bolshevik war and miracle on Vistula in 1920, uh, towering over others, uh, and it was really my goal to um, to offer some context to all those stories, uh, to uh, at some places to look broader or to uh, to ask myself what was, uh, a, how would things look like from a distinct per perspective? How were some um, parts of Polish history, of this particular history, uh, perceived by, uh, say, uh, non-Polish intellectuals, by minority groups? Uh, 
um, by by subaltern, uh, so to say. So if you uh, just just to give you one example, uh, if you are dealing with the way that uh, uh, national symbols uh, and of the of the independence were celebrated in the interwar period, uh, you that. To me, the most uh, most interesting stories are connected not to the official part of all those celebrations, but rather to all those that uh, tried hard to undermine them uh, or to uh, create an alternative uh, alternative world of, of uh, independence celebrations. And uh, really, the most uh, interesting and the most striking stories are connected to uh, a kind of silent uh, war of symbols between uh, national minorities and the Polish majority, which was also not united in their uh, in their um, in their celebrations. Uh, my, but but perhaps my my favorite and also most telling story, uh, most telling among those Polish myths uh, is uh, connected to the um, to literature, uh, to a poem uh, of a, uh, not really very much talented Polish poet uh, who um, uh, still during the war uh, wrote a popular poem on uh, on the, on how tragic it is that uh, Poles are fighting against each other uh, in uh, so many, at least three uh, various uh, armies in different uh, uniforms and shooting at each other. Um, and this uh, is um, and this is an instance when uh, literature shapes reality and uh, shapes, in a way, uh, national consciousness. Because the picture of an um, exceptionally cruel fate of uh, the Polish nation during the First World War is something that we, Polish students, uh, got taught uh, at school. And, and, and that, well, that is a picture that we all uh, Get ingrained in, into our uh, into our um, war narrative. Um, if you look again broader or in, in a slightly different context, you will first see that uh, this kind of uh, civil war. Uh, killing your co-nationals during the war is something pretty typical in uh, in the war that it uh, that it is exactly as uh, cruel for Poles as it has been for Ukrainians, uh, Serbs, uh, Romanians or uh, any other of the, those divided nationalities and that is first thing. Uh, the other uh, even more striking is when you're uh, searching for um, for uh, attempts at uh, 
kind uh, of a, a truce, uh, something that would resemble Christmas truce on the Western Front in 1914. And there are some instances uh, on the Eastern Front, uh, namely in uh, 1915 and 1916, and both times they had very much to do with the fact that at those two times, uh, as it happens from time to time, uh, Orthodox and Catholic Easter took part precisely on the same day. Uh, and those guys who were, uh, well, organizing all things, well, exchanging gifts, playing football or whatever, like singing together and, and well, basically not shooting at each other, were not co-nationals, but were very different people, were Orthodox and Catholics. And what drove them was not that they were akin or they were just the same, what drove them uh, to this kind of peaceful coexistence was the opposite. They were interested in each other because they were so different. Uh, that is a kind of you know, striking, uh, striking front experience from the Eastern Front. It is not uh, about uh, Poles who are so thrilled to discover that uh, there are Poles on the other side. There were people thrilled by the fact that, well, Although we are so completely different, uh, we celebrate Easter at the same day. Uh, and, uh, and there is a sad postscript to, those, uh, to all these uh, stories about, uh, about killing your co-nationals. If you just take a short uh, overview of what is happening uh, directly afterwards, after 1918, you discover that basically all those exceptional nationalities that uh, did not have an uh, experience of uh, inter-ethnic fight during uh, the war, that is Germans who were basically on one side, Hungarians who were on one side, Russians who were on one side, they uh, are busily killing each other uh, during 1919, 1920 in uh, home war and uh, during white and red terror in Hungary. Uh, in silly civil war in and revolution in uh, in Russia, uh, in Berlin uh, and in uh, uh, Munich in in Germany. Uh, so uh, so that is uh, a one of the many stories that I was trying to uh, retell in a slightly different way in this book, and uh, and I like it very much precisely because it is so um, so nostalgic. Thank you. I'm, I'm myself looking forward to, to reading it. Um, and finally, what other books would you recommend our listeners to read on the topics we've, we've just covered? Well, uh, uh, well there are uh, some really interesting books that I uh, myself have not read. So I'm pretty confident that uh, that I, I will not mention the best one because I don't know it. Uh, what I read recently and what was really interesting, like conceptually, was uh, surely um, Vedran Duancic's uh, books on book on uh, Yugoslav geographers, which is a uh, to all those people who are interested in history of science of in the context of the First World War and who know the name Jovan Svij as 
basically the only one, the only Yugoslav geographer that everybody knows. Uh, well, uh, Vedran's books is on uh, is about other guys, and uh, that is a fascinating thing about the book. Uh, what Vedran does is showing uh, to the to the to his audience. What happened uh, when uh, Jovan Svich, the greater nationalistic Yugoslav Serb geographer, was absent? He was in Paris, he was shaping the new state, and he was publishing in French. Nobody uh, actually read him in Yugoslavia, and all those handbooks in geography, popular books, they were authored by other people. And all those people are uh, analyzed uh, by Vedran, some of them ending uh, as uh, Yugoslav patriots, some of them as Croat hot nationalists, uh, some of them as socialists, uh, very interesting bunch, uh, very, uh, very good, insightful book. Mm. There is uh, that, uh, two, at least two, uh, great uh, books about uh, post-war uh, and uh, violence and this kind of passage from from great war into uh, pygmy wars afterwards. Uh, that is uh, Johan Dula's uh, civil war in, in Central Europe, uh, which is about Poland, um, and which makes it well, to me, uh, slightly less interesting than the other by uh, Thomas Balkelis uh, on Lithuania. Uh, both were published by Oxford University Press. Uh, highly readable, uh, very interesting. Uh, and I uh, especially like the part on uh, Polish-Lithuanian dirty war that, uh, that is a chapter at, in, uh, in Thomas Balkelis' uh, book. And um, perhaps uh, on, the other, on another note, a, a, a book that tells a story of, uh, of uh, imperial uh, science and how uh, a, well, you and, and I, I suppose many of us uh, know uh, um, Peter Judson's uh, take on uh, Habsburg monarchy and, and the book I'm, uh, I, I have in mind is um, a kind of, mm, well, much more than a footnote to, to this narrative, a kind of, um, uh, a kind of uh, sample mm, showing the uh, longevity of, of, of the empire on the example of um, university structures and university culture of the Habsburg lands. Um, an interesting thing is that the book was actually written prior to uh, Peter Judson, uh, Judson's book, and uh, the author is uh, Jan Surman from Austria. The book is also available uh, in English. And it tells the story of a uh, post uh, of post mortem uh, uh, victory of of a, um, Habsburg uh, University model uh, and of Habsburg experts in uh, all those uh, succession countries that uh, replaced the old monarchy. 
so if you are interested in what uh, those nationalistic experts uh, were busily doing before they got so nationalistic and so expert, that is a book about them. And also uh, showing their possible perspectives within the world that perished in 1918. So if you, just, if you are asking yourself what would be of uh, Stepan Rudnicki had it not been first world, the First World War. Uh, this is a book that gives some hints, uh, some possible answers. Thank you, Maciej. It was my great pleasure talking to you today. And thank you again for your time. Thank you.